Welcome back, everybody, to this week's edition of Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Dr. Bob Weathers. I'm here with my friend... Odie Martinez. Odie Martinez. Not We're... a specialist. <laughs> I think you do just fine. And Odie and I will be engaging today, as we have in, in uh, uh, recent months, we'll be engaging in a dialogue about today's topic. Let me say a word about myself. I'll introduce the topic and we'll dive in, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I'm a professor of clinical psychology. I teach at a local university, California Southern University. I also work as a recovery coach and am and, and just coming right now from a men's group that I lead every Wednesday afternoon before our Ask, Addition, uh, Ask an Addiction Specialist mm -hmm. podcast and that's at Beginnings Treatment Centers uh, located in Santa Ana. I want to give a special uh, appreciation to Beginnings because they sponsor our weekly podcasts and uh, we're here because of them. So thank you to Beginnings Treatment Centers and thank you for joining us today. Last week we discussed, we had a guest last week, Bruce mm -hmm. Lupin uh, joined me and we discussed a very important distinction to be made between shame and guilt and I want to use this as an opportunity to recommend that you feel free to go back and view any of our previous podcasts, including last week. They're archived at Beginnings Treatment Centers under the uh, podcast heading. You can track them down there. You can also go to um, YouTube and they're all deposited in YouTube. Just look up Ask an Addiction Specialist and you'll have the whole, uh, almost a year's worth now of, of podcasts. You may be joining us as well through the Facebook group right now, and I want to uh, invite you to engage with Odie and me. We were just talking a minute ago. Yeah. Thumbs up. Today's uh, presentation, which we'll, we'll be looking at a holistic understanding of addiction, and we'll have a number of exercises that I want to encourage you to um, join me in actively if you're viewing from home and also really want to encourage you interacting with us. You can reach out to us. Austin Armstrong is our co-producer in the uh, in the studio today. He's manning every single technology <laughs> known to humankind right now and that will include if you send in comments or questions as we move along and there'll be plenty of opportunity for that. Uh, uh, he'll feel those and he'll share those with Odie and me in real time. And so I want you to know if you have a, a contribution to make that uh, we will definitely integrate it into our presentation. So thank you again for joining us and let's dive into today, today's topic, holistic understanding of addiction. By way of brief uh, review, uh, the last few weeks, and last week in particular, we talked about the distinction between shame and guilt and how it is that shame and blame paralyze us. They, they paralyze us emotionally, and we've talked mm -hmm. a lot about that here. They also paralyze us in terms of brain function. They're understood in terms of the brain's response to a fight, fight, or flight reaction. Fight, flight, or freeze reaction. They're the freeze, they're the freeze part of, of uh, the, the brain's response to a threat. And so shame is really a shutdown. It actually does shut us down. And you'll know this if you identify your experiences of shame. In fact, today in the men's group, someone talked about it this way. They said, shame is that feeling when somebody's disappointed in you as mm. a person. And I thought that was a good definition of it. So if you can think of a time that you've had somebody look at you with scorn or, or, or uh, uh, disgust or disappointment mm -hmm. is that the body's response is to kind of want to kind of curl up in a ball and that curling up in a ball really is what we're talking about. Yeah. And so that response which paralyzes us can be countered by a number of different things. Um, 
over time, we'll, we'll introduce here uh, various exercises that have to do with stress management. So for example, when we do a mindful awareness exercise, which is meant just to kind of focus in on our body's breathing or our senses or something like that, it can move us into the moment and move us out of a shame reaction. It can be very helpful. There's another thing that can help free us from shame, and that is good information. Shame is a it's a mid-brain, mid-brain response. Uh, our emotional center, which lies right between our ears, shame is primarily activated in between mine and your ears. And so anything that we can move, do to move the brain's activity from a midbrain to a forebrain, the frontal cortex, is a move in the right direction. And so good information, information of any kind, but we're gonna emphasize good information. Information processing takes place in the frontal cortex. So anytime that we can give word to what's going on emotionally, actually put into words or share with a friend mm-hmm. is moving an emotional response like shame from an unconscious in between the ears phenomenon to a conscious front of the brain phenomenon. And in that spirit then today, we'd like to share some good information and invite you to join us in thinking uh, productively about a holistic approach to addiction. And we'll actually define that term as we begin to move forward and we'll define it specifically in terms of how important it is to have a full-bodied understanding of addiction, multidisciplinary understanding of addiction in order to best assure successful and sustained recovery. So that's our goal. That's our goal today. How are we doing so far? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Looking forward. Okay. I'm Thank excited. you. Thank you. What we're going to do is we're going to break this down common sense wise. And I'm going to do this in a way that I was sharing with Odie earlier. I'm going to do this in a way that I've tried this out a couple of times this week in a couple of different groups that I've led, including the one I'm just coming from right now. And I want to ask some questions of you. What I'd like you to do is get a piece of paper or if you're writing at a computer like Austin is, or have a tablet or something like that, something to write down answers. I think it will help you to be engaged. So if you're able to do that, uh, I'd encourage you to do that. And I'm gonna ask some questions and offer some reflective time for you, for Odie and me. Mm-hmm. Odie and I will respond, and this is your golden opportunity to bug Austin. You can <laughs> send your questions to Austin, and he'll I will send your, your, your thoughts, your answers to some of these questions to Austin, and he'll be happy to share them with us. So question number one, if we're looking at a holistic understanding of addiction, trying to understand it from as many perspectives as possible, let's start with this. How do you think a medical doctor defines addiction? How would a medical doctor define addiction? So give some thought to that for just a moment. I'm gonna check in with Odie in just a moment. Before I do that, let me mention something. Uh, One of the things I've appreciated about your involvement here, Odie, is that you've Mm -hmm. been willing to share from your own experience with addiction. Mm-hmm. And my own, my own experience is, has, has been focused, I should say my clinical experience is focused around substance addiction. And I certainly, I, I'm in recovery from substance addiction myself. So I know that from the inside. The fact of the matter is, is that, that about 25% of us in the US have been addicted to substance. If, mm-hmm. you, include, if you include nicotine, if you include alcohol, nicotine, and other drugs, mm-hmm. 25%, one out of four people, are currently addicted. And the sad part is out of those that are currently addicted, only one out of 10 of those get help. Mm. So the vast majority of people that are, are clinically addicted to substance do not get help. 
Uh, but if we expand that, and this is where your presence has been really helpful and me, it means a lot to me. In fact, the friend I was sharing with you earlier that's been a part of our podcast right. that was talking to me, she said she really appreciated you're being willing to share a whole nother domain of addiction, which mm. is behavioral addictions. And if we expand then beyond just addiction to substance, uh, uh, to include the various behaviors that it's possible for us to be addicted to, some of the big ones that get a lot of attention uh, medically include gambling, uh, eating, uh, working, right. shopping, sex, pornography. Mm-hmm. What am I forgetting? I feel like I'm forgetting a big one. I'm sure that I am. There's a whole <laughs> bunch of behavioral addictions that we that we have that uh, 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 that were affected by yeah. that may not they may not show up. They may not register. Mm-hmm. And in fact, a recent study looked at it and it and it suggested that 90% of us, which is you and me, Austin, all of us, 90% of us have at least one behavioral addiction right now. Mm-hmm. And so, if you add that, then it makes addiction almost a universal phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, uh, the focus of my work is on substance addiction. I work with very few um, uh, uh, men and women in early recovery from substance addiction that also don't share behavioral addictions, and we talk about that. Mm-hmm. So it really helps for you to talk about your own experience with the behavioral addiction. Uh, in the addiction literature, sometimes it's referred to as a process addiction. Sometimes they'll talk about mm-hmm. substance versus process. It's the same difference, substance versus behavior. Mm-hmm. And while they're all behaviors, uh, some, some, some addictive behaviors associated with substance, some aren't. Um, I'll just I'll reiterate this because I've talked about this before because we just talked about this today in our group too, um, is that the word addiction um, has its roots in the Latin term addictus, mm-hmm. which uh, is uh, simply the, the Latin word for slave. And so there's a way that we that we talk about this. It makes it a human condition to be enslaved. Yep. And, and the goal would then be to recover our lives as free people, mm. to be liberated. Yep. The truth shall set us free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the goal <laughs> because all of us then know addiction. Yep. There's really not much room for judgment in this field. There's a fair bit of stigma. In fact, there's more than a fair bit. There's a lot of stigma towards substance addiction. And yet... We most of us experience some relationship to addiction in our lives directly, mm-hmm. much less in our families and so on. So it's a universal. So we're all here together working on this. Okay. Yeah. So if we then we then we open up the question, and I'm going to bring it to Odie and me. How might a medical doctor look at addictus, that is to say, enslavement, whether it's to a substance or to any one of the behaviors that we named? How might a medical doctor look at that? Let's talk about that for a second. Do you have any thoughts okay. about that? It's a little difficult to to say for sure because, for one, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> but uh, if I were to just take a wild swing at it, mm-hmm. I would have to mm-hmm. say maybe they would see it as, uh, they d- they would define it as a medical condition, possibly. Mm-hmm. That's really yeah. the no, thought. They start with that. In fact, in fact, what do you call a medical condition? If you have a, if you have a rash on your hand, I'm swimming because I have a little rash on my finger right now. <laughs> it's from swimming. I have a slight allergy to chlorine, uh-huh. and I swim regularly, and so it's a little bit stirred up right now. So what does a doctor, without getting technical, what does a doctor call a medical condition like a rash on Bob's finger? What does he call it? He calls it a disease. Oh, a disease. <laughs> Sorry. Uh-huh. It was, okay. wasn't meant to be a trick question. No, no. Yeah. But I think, I think if we take what you said, Odie, is that to look at addiction as a medical condition, to be more specific as a disease, that's exactly how mm. doctors look at okay. it. Disease. And so uh, and so a doctor, 
might treat this rash on my finger. I'm actually treating it right now with some hydrocortisone or cortisone, uh, cream. Might treat this and, and then might go about treating uh, a disease like addiction with yeah. other, uh, other medical approaches, mm-hmm. including medications and yeah. other recommendations around diet and certainly sobriety and so on. Mm-hmm. But they would look at it primarily from the perspective of, of a disease. And so when you hear this idea of addiction as a disease, and then people say, well, it's not a disease. You know, my sense of it is, from a medical perspective, it is a disease. Right. It, we're going to look at other perspectives that don't look at addiction from that metaphor. They don't speak of it as mm-hmm. a disease, right. and they're not any less valid than a medical perspective. It's just that that's what a medical perspective does. Right. There's a uh, saying that the American psychologist Abraham Maslow is credited with coming up with, and it's this, if you're a hammer, mm-hmm. then everything looks like a nail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I'm a medical doctor, then everything looks like a disease. Yeah. We'll look at some other mm. vantage points on addiction that don't really square with that, right. uh, because they're, they're, they have a different entry point. Mm-hmm. Our 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 suggestion today, and I want to suggest that you consider this, is that each one of these perspectives lends value, but also each perspective may have its limitations. So mm-hmm. let's let's talk about that for a second. Okay. If a medical doctor looks at addiction as a disease, Odie and Bob. What would be the upside? What would be some possible benefits of looking at addiction, whether it's your addiction or mm-hmm. my addiction or your addiction in the audience? What would be the, the benefit, the pros of looking at addiction via this disease metaphor? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, the upside would be that being a, a doctor that has noticed a disease, you know, yep. obviously they want to look for a cure. Yes. So yeah, yeah. they would do whatever it is in their power or their knowledge to, to look for a cure for the disease, yeah. I think would be a, yeah. a good pro. Yeah, that's very much, that's very much the way that, that medical doctors talk about diseases. And it's been interesting, as I listen to you and think about that, it's been interesting around addiction because addiction has sometimes been compared to other chronic diseases. There are diseases mm-hmm. like this rash is not chronic. It's very situational. Mm-hmm. It'll resolve itself probably within a week with this ointment that I'm putting on it right now. <laughs> and I can continue to swim rash free. Okay, <laughs> having said that, not all diseases are are, uh, are so easily resolved, or so, to use your word, are so easily cured. And so sometimes addiction is talked about as a chronic disease. It's compared to other diseases such as chronic uh, heart problems, or chronic high blood pressure, mm. or chronic diabetes. Mm. Is that if I have diabetes, uh, chances are at least a certain type of diabetes, you can't cure it, but you can treat it, and you can regulate it, and you can keep it uh, kind of contained. That's much more the metaphor that's used with addiction. And why is that? Is that addiction, uh, owing to the way that a doctor understands addiction, a medical physician, is that it's a a disease among other systems. It's a disease in the brain. Mm -hmm. Specifically, it's a disease in the reward center of the brain that once you open up that Pandora's box, it's very hard to kind of put it back in. This is why you'll hear about people... Why otherwise would people be working on lifelong sobriety that have been addicted to alcohol or other substances? Mm. The idea being is if they reintroduce alcohol or other substances, the addiction kicks back up again. Mm. So it's the same with diabetes. If I, if I have diabetes and uh, take my insulin and watch my sugar intake to be very simple about it, chances are I can regulate it. But if I go off of one of those, the doctor says, Bob, take your insulin. Bob, watch your sugar intake. And if I violate that, then the disease comes back. It wasn't cured. Mm. It's just been, uh, it's been kind of contained, right. or there's, there's, it's been, it's, it's uh, been uh, uh, regulated. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Perfect so sense. it's so just the, to put it in a sense of substance 
uh, abuse and going into recovery, yes, the the insulin yes would be like groups, yeah, to kind of contain. Beautiful metaphor. Right. See, this is why Odie's <laughs> with us. <laughs> okay, no, that's great. That's exactly right. Okay. And so, just as with insulin, there are plenty of people, and I've met them. I know them in self-help support groups that have been going for forty or fifty years, yeah. and it looks insane from the outside unless you think of it just the way you talked about it. Right, but it, it helps them. Yeah, it doesn't. If I if I compare it to insulin, it doesn't seem insane at all. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of like my minimal daily requirement is to make sure that I take care of myself so as to not uh, to not relapse, mm. whether it's to diabetes in the first example. There was another example that came up for me. Oh, I know what it was because it's come up this week. About almost 40 years ago, I injured my back working out in a gym. It was mm. just, it, it was just a single time. It was, I lifted wrong. Mm. <laughs> I lifted the weight wrong and I tweaked my back. And so ever since then, just one injury, ever since then it gets activated uh, occasionally and it just mm. happened to have gotten activated mm a couple days ago and and sometimes it's activated by my trying to lift something is obviously that was not a smart move this literally was like probably reaching over to get a sock or something i'm not even sure when it happened <laughs> but it wasn't like i was lifting something heavy but i'd lifted it wrongly I, I probably bent over wrong and probably Man. snapped up and so it's a little reminder for me that i've got to be careful because i don't it, i was just thinking recently this is so ironic i was thinking that i hadn't had any back issues in probably over a year <laughs> and because I play drums and lift drums in and out of a car and set mm -hmm. them up and they're heavy, it's very easy to, to you know, tweak my back. Yeah. And I've been very active musically, but I haven't done that because I'm, I'm lifting my drums really cautiously. Mm -hmm. And so I lifted a sock, let's say, not cautiously. Mm -hmm. And so, so there's a good example of something that there's a back condition, again, yeah. It really can't be cured if there's an injury that's, that's in there that, that, that's outside of maybe getting a surgery, which I'm not excited about doing, yeah. but it can be managed. It can mm -hmm. be managed. And so I, I manage it just fine until I get distracted, don't pay attention, lift a sock wrong, and there I am. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can probably think of examples in your own life that are, that are analogous to what, the way we're describing addiction. So I think this, this is helpful to talk about some of the benefits of a medical perspective because you can treat it or, or ideally you can, you can manage it if not cure it. Let's look at the downside of that. What's, okay. the, what's a possible downside? of a medical perspective. And I want to encourage you in the audience to be thinking about this too. When you think of all of the advances of medicine and how there's been so much work directed at understanding what happens in the human brain and the human body around addiction and all the various treatments you know, that, that's, that are implied in what you've talked about, what's the possible downside of, of this particular uh, perspective on addiction? I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, Odie? Yeah, it's, I think we kind of touched upon it already and that's, since the doctors see it as uh, as a disease, you know, what the treatment is usually medication yes. for most, I guess most of the time, mm -hmm. not trying to speak too generally, but yeah. you know, so, um, so that's probably, I, I would think for somebody that has substance abuse with um, medication, you know, uh, there's a huge uh, opioid epidemic going yeah. on, so I think yeah. Yeah. that would be pretty that's huge good. downside to it. Yeah, that's a, it's a good point, is that if that image of the hammer I had earlier, mm -hmm. if you're a hammer, everything's a nail, and it's really, it's, it's assumed nat national proportion, hasn't it, yeah. in terms of looking at the epidemic, is that 
let's just take my back pain for example. Let's say I go to a doctor and say, mm. Dr. Odie, would you please prescribe me some kind of opiate for my back pain? Mm. You might well have done that without even thinking about that right. in the past. And chances are, I might not have gotten addicted to it. Mm. I think the probability is something like one out of 10 people get addicted. Mm. But what if I'm the one out of 10? Yeah. You know, and, and there I'm stuck with it. And nowadays the opiates are so powerful that the statistics are probably different than one out of 10. Mm. Um, but, but now doctors are being held accountable to be careful about this, to really monitor it, to make sure that if you give me prescription for my back and I come back in a week mm -hmm. and I've gone through 100 pills of, of yeah. you know, Oxycontin or something like that, you're not going to just ignore that. And mm -hmm. so there's a lot more attention given to that. You know, you remember I mentioned back in June, I was invited by the American Pharmacists Association yeah. to speak to this group. They had their annual conference in, uh, this happened to be in Salt Lake City. And the whole topic was uh, uh, addressing uh, the opioid dependence crisis. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was invited to speak there. And what I was struck by as I participated in the whole week-long conference is that they're so aware of this being a problem, mm -hmm. is that pharmacists are holding themselves accountable, medical doctors are holding themselves accountable. Right. So they have to be much more aware of some of the limitations. Their training is to prescribe medication mm -hmm. and to administer it, and sometimes at great cost. Mm -hmm. That's, I'm glad you raised that. It's an interesting controversy in, in, in especially that you mentioned substance addiction, is that is that there are plenty of individuals in the in the recovery field, let's say, that question, let's say that you're uh, that you you have a depression mm -hmm. that can be um, addressed biologically with a with a medication. Mm -hmm. But let's say also that you've been addicted to a substance mm -hmm. of some kind, let's say yeah. alcohol or uh, cocaine or uh, or an opiate, there are plenty of people in the recovery field that feel like you shouldn't take the antidepressant because after all, it's a medication. My personal view on that is mm -hmm. that while it's possible to get confused about this, mm. very few people get addicted okay. to a, to a, a antidepressant medication. It doesn't, it's not a, it's not a, it's a, not a substance that one takes more of mm -hmm. to get high. It, it's right. not altering like that. It helps to manage the depression. But you can understand why people are leery of a medical perspective because it's the same medical perspective in some ways that may have gotten them into trouble if it was with painkiller medication. Mm. Right. And so you can see how it kind of bleeds over into, no, you, OD shouldn't have an antidepressant medication even when that would work because it's a medication. Mm. I think that's faulty logic personally, right. but that is a controversy in the field. And yeah. there probably be some people watching today that would disagree with what I just said. Right. You know, <laughs> so. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll share with you also, and then we'll move on to the next question, okay. is that when I introduced this uh, question uh, today to the group mm -hmm. that I met with at Beginnings, uh, there are individuals that talked about this, is that as, as much value as there is to a medical perspective, for example, a couple of people talked about how it is that if I can understand what's happening in my brain, these are people mm -hmm. that are in early recovery from very severe addiction. And if I can understand what's happening in my brain, it helps me to feel less bad, less wrong for addiction. I understand that it's a, it's a brain disease. It actually helps me to kind of step back and look at it objectively, which isn't to say I don't take responsibility, but I don't get so sunk by shame. Mm. So a medical perspective, because it's looking at things scientifically, can be very helpful. I asked this question about the possible cons, and one of the things, it's the flip side of that, is that one of the problems that will happen is that if I get labeled or you get labeled as an addict, mm -hmm. it can become a label and it can start off as being a medical diagnosis. You know, Odie, right. Bob, you're, you, you're addicted to this or that. But then soon enough, it can turn into a label where, 
Odie and Bob are addicts and we don't like addicts. Mm. Or even worse, Odie and Bob are addicts and addicts are hopeless. Mm. There's nothing that can be done for them. And so that may not be the, the vantage point of a doctor, but that the idea of a diagnosis can turn into a label. And, and mm. a couple of people mentioned this today, yeah. is that the downside to this is that you get to where you're, you're labeled. And the worst of it, as we discussed today in this earlier group, is where I start labeling myself, right. where you start labeling okay. yourself. Gotcha. And then we're back into last week's presentation where we talked about what shame does is it labels us and it, and it, and it renders us hopeless because if I am this thing, then how do I change who I am? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Let's introduce a, a second question. How do you think a courtroom judge defines addiction? Mm -hmm. So let me, let me throw that out to our audience. How do you think a courtroom judge defines addiction? I'll tell you how a young man to my left answered this question. <laughs> as soon as I asked it, he said, how does a courtroom judge define addiction? He just said, three to five years. And I thought, that's about as good as it gets. That's about as good as it gets. That was his answer, three to five years. I looked at him and I said, do you think a, a, a courtroom judge really cares about what happens in your brain around addiction? Hmm. For example, the biology of addiction. Right. And the whole group said, no, that's not what a courtroom judge does. Yeah. Um, but let me just open that up. How do you think, when you think of from a law enforcement perspective or from a judicial or legal perspective, how do you think a courtroom judge might think about addiction? Any thoughts about that? There's lots of different yeah, possible options here. Hmm. Possibly see it as a danger danger to the community. I think that's right on. You know? That's where my mind went. It's yeah. interesting that that's where my mind went. The judge is there to enforce laws, or law enforcement is there to enforce laws, and the judge is there to monitor how people are doing with that. And if people violate community mm -hmm. uh, 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 standards, laws, ethics, regulations, they're there to get people back in line. Right. You know, they're there to punish uh, and and hopefully correct people's uh, not conforming to agreed upon behaviors. They're there to protect the community, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And so if I violate those, I think that really does get more inside the the the, the head, so to speak, of of a courtroom judge. Right. Uh, they're there to protect people. Right. Yeah. And I only know that because my wife works at the courts. So. <laughs> oh well, wonderful. Aren't we fortunate? Yeah. We have. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. I was trying to think. I'm like. Yeah. I know my wife has talked to me about this. What yeah. do they see? Yeah. Somebody I think that, that has had well, thank history you. with that. So thank you to your wife for yeah. that. You know, it's interesting. On the former question, my father was a physician, and so it's not hard for me to get into the mindset of my father's way mm -hmm. of viewing. Uh, uh, like you talked about disease and addiction would be a disease. Right. Your wife works in a courtroom, uh, in a, where does she work? At a court? She works at, at court. At the court. So you have an idea from talking to her how they understand that. Let's talk about this for a second. This is to give respect to your wife okay. as well. What's a possible upside? And then let's, let's look at a possible downside of that kind of courtroom judge's approach to, to enforcing the law, so to speak. You have any thoughts about that? Uh, I think... Um from what I've experienced through through my wife is they have the courtroom system in, in general has uh, a lot of resources that they can provide yeah. for people who have uh, had history with substance abuse. Yes, you know, yeah. then they can say, tell them we have uh, 
certain programs that you can go to that we, um, yeah. I don't know if endorse is the right, correct word, but just as a resource, you know, to yeah. let them know, hey, you can either surf time or you can, yeah. Yeah. Or you can go get clean, yeah. sober. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I think that's a huge, that's, huge plus. That's a huge plus. It came up in the discussion today. I want you to know, I appreciate you mentioning that. Mm -hmm. And so it turns out that that answer three to five years, it depends on the judge. <laughs> yeah. And and I had, <laughs> this is because I just led a men's group. I had men in the group that, that shared their experiences across the whole spectrum. Mm. For some, it was very cut and dried. For mm. one individual who comes from an ethnic minority, it was actually worse than three to five years because mm. that would be the minimal and he was given the maximal. And he believes it was owing to um, racial prejudice. Mm. And so it's heartbreaking to hear that. Yeah. So you think the law is in there and it's supposed to be it's supposed to be the same for Bob and for Odie. Right. And what if it's not? And it's clearly not always. You're bringing up the good side, and I appreciate right. and there were there were there were men in the room today that said they had been in fact one of them said, I was given mercy because of the circumstances that I had done something that was illegal and it was also related to my addiction. And so in active addiction, uh, I, I did things that I wouldn't have done otherwise mm. and the courtroom judge saw that and, and gave me an option. And just like what you just said, right. you can do time or you can get treatment and he's mm -hmm. in treatment right now. And by the way, I think he's doing very well in treatment. Good. He's, somebody, he's yeah. very motivated for treatment, which is not always the case. Mm -hmm. So there, the upside of that is that a judge can be humane. A judge is protecting the, the welfare of, of, of the larger community mm -hmm. and also can step in and, and aim towards treatment. Yeah. I read statistics on this over the last few years, and they might be adjusted, but it's something of this order, and I also know this from my father. My father was a psychiatrist in the state penal system in California, worked in the state prison system. Mm -hmm. And I think the statistics were something like this at the time of his career, that 80% of people in prison were there because of drugs for three reasons. They were either high, committing a crime, mm. they were selling, or they were seeking drugs. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're in the process of seeking drugs, trying to buy them, they're high, and or they're selling them. And so 80% of people in the prison system right now are there because of drugs. So you can see it's a massive problem. Yeah. And uh, one of the, one of the um, wonderful things that's developing, and I only hope that it continues, is that there would be as much emphasis on, on uh, treating mm -hmm. those that are addicted as there would be on protecting the community from those that are addicted. Right. I, can, I can understand that. I don't think it makes sense to be soft on <clears throat> the crimes that are associated mm -hmm. with addiction. I also believe that if you don't treat it, They'll just come back. Right. Come back. So, yeah. so that's a that's an upside. What's a possible downside of a courtroom judge's perspective? Your wife's experience. <laughs> a, a courtroom judge's uh, 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 definition or understanding of addiction. What would be a possible downside? Well, it's mostly just coming more through my own reflection of her position there, and just kind of playing playing it through my head what would happen if you know somebody did go with the if the judge did give the opportunity to, to get treatment or um, if you got a judge that I don't know for some reason maybe he's had bad experiences yeah. you know just very um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, bias yeah. with the decision yeah. then he yeah. could miss uh, misjudge yeah. and send yeah. them to prison yeah. instead of yeah. Yeah. Um, sending them to a treatment facility. Yeah, yeah. You know, you remind me, as you say that, of a, a dear friend of mine, and we'll have to have him one day on our podcast here. I've interviewed him at the university. 
um, on a couple of occasions, Carlos Alvarez. Mm -hmm. He's a, a former student of mine, a dear, dear soul. Carlos grew up uh, in the inner city uh, uh, of uh, South Central mm. as a gang member. Wow. He grew up grew up yeah. in this. He was able to get out of it mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, got training in forensic psychology. Mm. That's where I met him, and he's gone on. He's going on now to get his doctorate in uh, counseling psychology, and he works at as a, a vice principal of a charter school up in inner city Los Angeles, and he, his central outreach is to gang members. Wow. And it, there's two goals there. One is to to reach out to help divert gang members that are on their way on a pathway to uh, prison or death, mm. owing to being involved. Uh, drug abuse is rampant there. And also he addresses those that are released from prisons back into the community that are high risk for return to crime, mm -hmm. drug-related crime. We've already established 80% of crime that's going to prison is drug-related. Right. And so he, that, that's his work. And the work he's doing specifically is in the arena of what, what's referred to as restorative justice. The typical response in the justice system in the U.S. is what's referred to as retributive justice. It comes from the word retribution, which means I'm going to pay back. I'm going to pay you back, or you're going to pay back. <laughs> so if you commit a crime, uh, 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 retributive justice punishes you. You have to pay for that crime. That's the retribution. The idea of restorative justice: if you commit a crime. I want to do what I can to treat you and restore you to community. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that we're soft on crime. It means that you may have to do harder work. Yeah. Treatment is probably harder for some people than actually going to prison. Mm -hmm. So to actually get in and get treated, get sober, stay sober, and all that's involved in that is not an easy task, but that's really what Carlos is doing. So he works at a school, I'll give you an example. He works at a high school where that uh, in, in uh, the years previous to his working there, the um, What's the word for it? It's um, when you kick people out of school. What's it called? Expelled. Expulsion rate. Thank you very much. The expulsion rate was some, it was like 10% or something. 10% of students were expelled oh. because this is high risk inner yeah. city. I'm just going to make up that number. It was a very high amount. And he began to introduce this very active uh, intervention into the school, and it dropped down to 1% within like two years, where it was, a, it's still a lot, but it dropped down significantly, where there were very few expulsions at all. Out of a class of 100, it might be one person that got expelled. And so it's effective, but it's a different approach. Yeah. It doesn't, see, expulsion is one of the things, if, you, if I act up in class and you're my teacher, then retribution would be, we're going to kick you out of school, Bob. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a short-term solution. It gets me out of the class. Long-term, it makes me much more a risk for gang involvement and other yeah. kinds of things. So what would it be like to, to respond to me with punishment, but the punishment would be restorative in nature? That is to say, I need to somehow uh, get back on track. Mm -hmm. If I've wronged you or wronged other students, I have to make apology, and I have to get reinvolved in the community. And so what he's finding out is that's much more effective. Much yeah. more effective is mm -hmm. that it actually curbs gang involvement, et cetera. So that's great. So that would be that would be a more enlightened approach to kind of kind of the judicial or the legal perspective on it. One of the thoughts that comes out of the group as well, and I really appreciate what you said. It depends yeah. on what school you're going to. It depends on who your judge is. Is that uh, uh, one of the benefits of the three to five years approach is it's very cut and dried. Yeah. One of the downsides is it's very cut and dried. <laughs> and so it doesn't look at it doesn't look at whether you're motivated for treatment. It doesn't look at any extenuating circumstances, mm. uh, at least 
sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. And uh, what we're talking about is in introducing, uh, uh, what would, uh, it would be like introducing redemption. Mm. And the legal system is not set up to think in terms of redemption. How can we, we redeem you and get you back involved again? Yeah. And so we're not interested in your addiction. We're not interested in what's happening in your brain. We're, we're interested in you paying for your crime. Yeah. That would be that approach. And that would be a downside of that kind of mm. harder approach. And there's plenty of that that's still out there. Yeah. Another question? How would a therapist define addiction? And so whatever comes to mind around this, I can't answer this, it's unfair because I've spent my whole career as a therapist. <laughs> but all of us have some idea of a, what a counselor or a therapist. I do recovery coaching. How would a recovery coach define addiction? And so let's, let's think of it in contrast to, we already talked about a medical doctor mm -hmm. and a courtroom judge. How might a therapist understand addiction? Do you have any thoughts, just associations to that? I think it's sort of parallel to, to um, a doctor, you know, to the medical field as well. It's not necessarily a disease, but since therapists deal more with uh, the mental, mm -hmm. the brain activity side of things, I'd say more uh, of a mental illness. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. It's, it, it's no accident that physicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, marriage and family therapists all use the same manual. Mm -hmm. uh, it's referred to as the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of right. Mental Disorders. Mm -hmm. They use the same manual for diagnosis. They use the same uh, nomenclature. And so, for example, in the most recent edition of the DSM, the fifth edition, uh, what we're calling addiction is, re is, is referred to under the umbrella term of substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. And so they use the exact same language as medical doctors. What are some differences do you imagine between a medical doctor and a therapist in terms of how they might, uh, if you were to push them to define addiction, or it's implied in your, what you said, how they might address addiction? Do you have any thoughts about that? How might a therapist address addiction in a different way maybe than a medical doctor? They'd probably, I would say, they'd look at probably the history of the person, mm -hmm. uh, childhood, yeah. you know, childhood, yeah. growing up, how it was. Um, growing up and traumas and all that good stuff that goes with it. Yeah, it's interesting because when I raised this question today, that was exactly where the group went, just right yeah. where you went. As I said, a therapist is going to be much more interested in looking at the, uh, in, in uh, uh, psychology we call it the etiology, the background or the mm -hmm. history of a disorder to understand how it came to be. What I cited in, in this conversation in the group today, and it's relevant here, is that uh, Kaiser Permanente Hospital System did a a massive nation, national study, uh, and it was a longitudinal study, and all that means is they studied people over time. Mm -hmm. So let's say that they take you and me over a 10-year period of time, mm -hmm. and they study us from our childhood into young adulthood. And so they studied, they studied uh, 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 a lengthy period of time of Odie's and Bob's lives, and, and then they looked at our histories, and they looked at any possible correlations between our histories growing up mm -hmm and our proneness to certain diseases. And one of the diseases they looked at was addiction. Mm. And so probably not surprisingly, but what they found was a very strong correlation between what they referred to as adverse childhood experiences, which would be trauma, mm. any kind of psychological trauma. Okay. If you think of, of emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, abandonment, 
They included in here death of a parent, death of a sibling, mm. divorce, uh, a whole range of possible traumas. Yeah. And they looked at uh, they looked at an addicted population, and what they found is that in the in the population of those that are currently addicted, there's an extremely high proportion of those that have abnormally high scores on adverse childhood experiences. Mm. Probably no surprise, but it's an authoritative yeah. study. So it's just to, just to suggest that that's a factor in addiction, mm. is that there's such a high correlation. It may not cause it. In other words, you can go through trauma, and I go through trauma. You might not end up addicted. I might end up addicted. So obviously, it's not a one-to-one -one prediction. Right. But because there's such a high proportion of those that have been addicted with unusually high amounts of trauma, it stands to reason that that's a problem that needs to be addressed if, mm -hmm. if, if recovery is the aim. Yeah. And I think that you're right, and the group said this today too, is that therapists tend to focus more on that. Mm. Tend to focus more on that. What can we do to work through the trauma of life, particularly uh, childhood and adolescent development, in those that become addicted, typically in early adulthood? Mm. So let me ask a question. What would be the upside of that? The upside is that you get to begin to understand what it was possibly that yeah, got yeah, you into... Yeah your addictive uh, behaviors or um, substance abuse. Yes. So it's just getting to know yourself more uh, on a deeper level, mm -hmm. knowing why yeah. you do what you do. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important to, to get to understand and get to know. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that last piece that you just said is that uh, because there is so much stigma about addiction, mm -hmm. I think it can be very helpful, and clients today talked about this, it can be very helpful to begin to understand why they do what they do. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're just losers right. or stupid or weak as much as there are psychological reasons, there are actually medical reasons uh, uh, that they've gotten into trouble with the law mm -hmm. and that it gives them a di different vantage point. And you mentioned this earlier that doctors and therapists in some ways look at it similarly. Right. The goal of both those disciplines is to look at addiction scientifically. Mm -hmm. So whether you're looking at the study I just shared, the Kaiser Permanente study, yeah. is a long-term scientific study. Physicians are looking at what happens in the brain also using scientific methodology. Right. In both those cases, they're trying to look at addiction objectively. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 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 personal shame around addiction, if I feel ashamed for being an addict, or if others judge me, is not an objective or scientific view. It's a subjective reaction to. It can be my reaction or other people's reaction to me. And so it can be very helpful to have that kind of objectivity to look at things at arm's length, especially yeah. if we've been sunk by shame and stigma ourselves. Yeah. What's a possible downside of a therapeutic perspective on addiction? We talked about therapist looking, for example, at trauma, what would be a possible downside of that? Wanting, <clears throat> wanting to, to seek the help, I think, because uh, at least for me uh, growing up, it's always been, been a stigma with uh, therapy. Yeah. You know, I've, I've talked to uh, I've talked to a relative before I've had conversations with them, and I've told them, have you ever thought of therapy? Maybe that's a good idea to try out. And um, half jokingly, half not jokingly, they would yeah. tell me, I'm not crazy. Yeah. I don't need to go to a therapist. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. me having to tell them, you don't have to be crazy to, right. Right. to go to a therapist. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's a joke, I think, here in the U.S. that Southern Californians 
people from Los Angeles all go to therapy. I mean, there's just kind of a joke around that. <laughs> Since I've practiced some version of psychotherapy, counseling, coaching now mm-hmm. over the last 40 years, I can guarantee you that is not my experience. Most people come to see a therapist as a, as a last resort. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are people out there that do it just to add it to their uh, status, I guess, but I've never worked with those people. And I've worked with people from kind of every possible echelon is that most people will exhaust family. Mm-hmm. They'll exhaust ministers, coaches, mm-hmm. uh, I'm thinking of sports coaches, yeah. anybody they can go to. And then finally they come in when they've given up and go, oh, I guess I better go see a therapist mm-hmm. now. So for most people, there's a sense of stigma, I think, even here in Southern California. Mm-hmm. So if you're watching this and you're not Southern California, I want to correct that misperception. <laughs> it's not my experience that it's a cool thing in most cases, to go see a therapist. Mm -hmm. And then certainly families and certain ethnic groups and so on like that have stigmas on top of that. There's plenty of of, uh, judgment made for this. And so one of the downsides, I really appreciate you saying that, one of the downsides of a therapeutic perspective is it may sound nice on paper, Mm -hmm. but I'll be darned if I'm going to go see a therapist. I'm not going to go see a therapist. And so that's one of the limitations for sure. Um, Let me throw a wrench in the works by the next question. That is, how do you think a minister or a rabbi might define addiction. And the reason I say throw a wrench in the works is that oftentimes in the world of recovery, people will talk about um, uh, uh, therapists with the question, the value of going to see a therapist Mm -hmm. because because addiction is seen from a certain vantage point primarily as a spiritual problem. Mm -hmm. And so why would you go see a psychotherapist if you've got a spiritual problem? Mm -hmm. That's why I'm asking this question. So let's just talk about this. How do you think a minister or a, a rabbi, a religious leader might define addiction. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think for, at least through my experience and f- from my understanding, just to make it clear, this is mostly just from my understanding because yes, I actually uh, went through it through this route. Okay, great. Um, but from what I understood through my experiences, it, it added to my recovery as well. Yes. And that is um, there's... There's a part of the Bible where Paul the Apostle, um, he pretty much, I believe he had some physical ailments and he... A thorn in the flesh. Yeah, there you go. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And so he would, he would pray to God asking, you know, take it away from me if, yep. if it's in your will pretty much. But the answer that he pretty much got back was, well, if I take it away, you might not, this is God speaking to Paul, you might not... Uh, rely on me yep. anymore. So, uh, through my experience, uh, that behavioral addiction was like a thorn yeah. on the side, yeah. and uh, yeah. just um, I still have my struggles, obviously. But you know, and I've prayed for them to be gone completely. Yeah. But uh, I feel like after reading that verse, that's how uh, I kind of shift that perspective. Of I like that a lot. Well. You know, if he takes it away, there's a good chance that I will not rely on him for it anymore. But on the side of that, a more practical side of it is, um, you know, going through meetings helped a lot as well. You know, just talking to openly to other men about my struggles. Really appreciate all that you just said. Yeah, that's really, I really appreciate that a lot. I think that Odie's just shared a spiritual perspective on addiction. And so whether it's a minister or a rabbi or someone in one of the, the 
uh, support meetings, the 12-step su uh, support uh, system with AA and NA and other groups is very much based on, on, uh, on, a, on a religious premise mm -hmm. that addiction is primarily a spiritual problem that demands a spiritual solution. Right. But I like very much how you flesh that out is to look at it that, that, uh, that, that this affliction, this thorn in the flesh can actually be something that moves me into a relationship to what the 12-step program calls your higher power. Right. Call yeah. it God, call it your higher power, it doesn't really matter. Is that however you understand something greater than yourself, it puts you in a relationship of obedience, mm -hmm. of humility, right. of surrender is a term that gets used a lot, and that it's given meaning or purpose in that context. Right. And so at its best, it's not shamed. Mm -hmm. It's actually seen as, uh, God's humbling of you yeah. and, and reminding exactly. you of your, your uh, reliance on God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the pros are built right into what you said and it's mm -hmm. what we're talking about. It's, it, can, it can be a, a, a life transformation mm -hmm. as a function of something that you, you wouldn't think of this shadow element or what St. Paul called the thorn in the flesh as something that actually introduces you to a deeper relationship to your spirituality. Right. That's very yeah. much what you're talking about. Yeah. Let me ask this question, if I may. Yeah. What would be a possible negative, a possible downside of a spiritual uh, understanding or spiritual definition of addiction? I think uh, through my experience as well, um, I think to a certain extent, it's important to also uh, to have practical resources as well mm -hmm. as spiritual resources. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I because I, I believe like that. Sure, you know, s spirituality is is uh, number one. But mm -hmm. I feel like, um, personally for me, God has placed these certain resources as well to to aid us, yes, not to yeah, yeah. like completely dismiss them. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. In the literature of addiction and recovery and in the larger literature of spirituality, there's a concept that's been used sometimes uh, that referring to this, mm -hmm. referred to as spiritual bypassing. The idea that is I had bypassed what you're calling practical solutions right. because everything is spiritual and I won't do anything that isn't spiritual sounding or mm -hmm. spiritual in origin. Right. And in, in, in this idea of spiritual bypassing, we actually ignore parts that have been given to us, uh, uh, give, uh, tools, uh, resources that have been given to us because they're not spiritual enough. Mm. And it's a bypassing because it's a bypassing at great cost to ourselves. Right. So in the realm of addiction, to be able to hold respect, as you just talked about, for spirituality and not ignore, in the context of our conversation today, not to ignore any of the other previous perspectives. Right. None of the other previous perspectives, whether it's a medical doctor, a courtroom judge, or a therapist, are explicitly spiritual in orientation. Mm. But they offer practical tools. Right. And what Odie's saying is, make use of those and also make sure to understand the spiritual component of one's addiction. Somebody's written a comment up here. Ask Dr. Bob. Okay, I guess that would be me. <laughs> Ask Dr. Bob if recovery facilities should focus on the use of words to show how important how much weight they carry in developing one's life. That's a great question. It actually came up in today's group, the group that I led. The use of words to show how important how much weight they carry in developing one's life. I'm going to answer this in one direction right now. We could probably spend a whole podcast talking about the importance of using words. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's implied in what we're talking about right now. In fact, I'll use this example of what we just talked about. Odie's talking about 
I know that you have a grounding or a bedrock in your faith. Mm -hmm. That's clear from our conversation. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a commitment that you have. Let's put it that way. Okay. It's a commitment that you have, and that 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 how you think about your faith or how you how you live your faith has very much impacted your healing from addiction. Mm -hmm. And then you just but you just clarified something, which is that if all you were to rely on was spiritual categories to address your addiction, mm -hmm. uh, which is a way of understanding, a way of using words to describe addiction, that you'd be missing other resources mm -hmm. and your wishes to be inclusive of other things, what you call practical right. matters as well. And so the way we talk about addiction, it's really implied in this presentation today, the way we talk about it, I guess I wanna say this right now, I'm kinda of jumping ahead to where we're going in just the next few minutes. We're gonna wind down in about five or 10 minutes, but I wanna say this right now, cause it's timely is that the way a doctor defines addiction, the way a judge defines addiction, the way a therapist defines addiction, the way a spiritual individual, including a minister, defines addiction, what we're suggesting is that there's value in each one of those languages. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and I would also add this, is that every one of those languages, I believe, is necessary. Yeah. What I would also add to that is that there, any one of those alone is not sufficient. Mm. So a way of wording addiction from a medical perspective is necessary but not sufficient because it doesn't cover a spiritual perspective. Mm -hmm. A therapeutic perspective is valuable and I would say necessary, but it doesn't include a judicial perspective. And so if we're talking about the use of words, that's really what we're discussing here, are different mm -hmm. languages for understanding addiction. And I guess what we're suggesting, I don't guess, I believe very strongly what we're suggesting is that, that there's value in all of these, mm -hmm. that there's a rightness in all of them. And so what you'll end up with sometimes, and I'm stepping into a, a later slide even today, you'll end up with what's referred to as a part-whole error, W-H-O-L-E, a part-whole error. And what that is, is mistaking some part. We just talked about spirituality. Mm -hmm. You'd be mistaking that for everything. Mm -hmm. Or a judge and a, a judicial perspective taking that part that's true We've already talked about the value of it right. for treating addiction and making it the whole, which would be to exclude any other perspective. Mm -hmm. So if I only adopt a judicial, then I exclude a medical, a therapeutic, and a spiritual perspective. And what we're suggesting is that all of those, that's today's topic, right. is a holistic approach to understanding addiction, is really representing how do you get your arms around multiple ways of describing, using words to describe addiction. I think it matters a lot. So to answer this individual's question, my sense of it is that recovery facilities are best served by adopting as much as they can an interdisciplinary wholeness mm. uh, where they draw in every discipline. You know, it's interesting when I'm sitting with a room full of young men, most of whom have been in legal trouble, and I ask them, what's the positive value of a legal perspective? They're able to speak to that. Yeah. They're able to speak to that, which suggests that even if they've been punished, and most of them have been, mm -hmm. they still see value the way that you talked about it in terms mm -hmm. of protecting the community. Right. So what we're suggesting here uh, from a positive perspective is that there's value to all of these languages, all of these ways of wording addiction. To put it in a slightly tongue-in-cheek way, one author that I respect a lot says, no one's smart enough to be 100% wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Which is to say that, that none of these perspectives are wrong. Yeah. They're all right, they're all partial, and so they all need each other. Let's continue on to a couple more questions here. We'll be quick with this one. How do you think a loved one defines addiction? You and I both have loved ones that have mm -hmm. been with us through addiction, so I can take a stab at this one. <laughs> 
I think that my loved ones could see addiction as a responsibility, and they're not wrong, by the way. Mm-hmm. We just established they couldn't be 100% wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think they also saw it as uncaring. I think it could be seen as um, sickness, mm-hmm. sickness. Uh, I think it could be understood as um, weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, why can't you just say no? You know, just gonna, yeah. And if you think about it, a loved one is afraid of losing you, mm-hmm. losing your love, and in the case of substance addiction, losing your life. And so it brings up fear, and oftentimes fear will manifest uh, as a secondary emotion of anger. Mm-hmm. I can be afraid that I'm going to lose you as my brother, right. but you won't see my fear. You'll see my anger. I'll be mm-hmm. judge, uh, judgmental and angry at you. And so it will manifest as anger, and they'll define, they'll define addiction as being... Uh, uh, lacking thoughtfulness, yeah. being careless, being stupid. That's a start. You yeah. want to add something to that list? <laughs> I think you, you were spot on with the fear part of it. I was thinking that they might define it as what is, what does this mean about us? Uh, as, yeah, that's good. You know, for yeah. especially in a relationship, what is, how does this define who we are or yeah. Yeah. who I am? Yeah. If I continue to to be with you, yeah. but I think fear pretty much sums it up with, with that thought. I like the way you're talking about that. It's almost like if we combine it, that thought would be associated, it seems like, to me with fear, because mm-hmm. I think you're saying, saying it rightly, is that a loved one is gonna look at your or my addiction in the context of the relationship, mm-hmm. and now there's a direct jeopardy to the relationship, which would manifest in different ways, but one of those would be fear. What's mm-hmm. gonna happen to us is yeah. gonna be up to us. Yeah. What's a pro of that? What's an upside of that? particular response from a loved one, do you think? That it's no longer I, it's now we, so it's a combined effort to to find a solution instead of going at it alone, which yeah. never works. I really like that. It's it's establishing that that addiction happens in the context of relationships. Mm-hmm. There's a YouTube video by Johanna Harry that a lot of people have seen where he says uh, uh, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Mm. Yeah. And so he suggests he's looking at addiction in the context of disconnection, of isolation. And so he's looking at addiction as a relational phenomenon, mm-hmm. or at least the healing of it yeah. as a relational phenomenon. So I like how you put it in the context of we. And what's the downside? What's the downside of a loved one's perspective on addiction in the ways that we just talked about it? You can lose it all. Yeah. yeah. Very simple. Yeah, very simple. Like very cut and dry. Yeah. And to put it this way, yeah. it can that anger can turn into pushing somebody away. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, if 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 a loved one uh, very understandably is enraged, feels betrayed, and they probably have been betrayed, it's really a it, you can't mm. lose it. It's so it's such a razor's edge because that that anger, that fear can come out as a judgment. Mm-hmm. And if they don't leave me, I might want to leave them. Yeah, especially in the context of of early uh, early recovery. So it's risky. It's risky right. business. Yeah. I, I have to tell you, and it's a very sad reality for me because I work in various treatment uh, settings. Mm-hmm. It's not unusual to have people coming in and licking their wounds 
as they've gone through divorce, mm -hmm. lost relationships with families, parents have left them, yeah. children have, have disowned them, and so it's very, it's 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 an it's very common for that to happen. It's where it, where it breaks down is that the relationship is could not sustain the burden of the addiction and mm -hmm. it finally just uh, uh, breaks down completely. It's very tragic to me. Yeah. We're gonna wrap up in just a minute. Let me ask this question of you in the audience and that would be, I wanna ask you, how would you define addiction? Mm. We've talked about all these different perspectives. How would you define addiction? And let me be more specific about that. We've covered five different approaches today. Let's review the medical perspective, judicial perspective, mm -hmm. therapeutic perspective, medical perspective. What did I just say? You repeated yourself. I did. I repeated. <laughs> yeah. Therapeutic perspective, a minister's perspective. Yeah, Sorry minister, about that. Sorry. Yeah. Minister's perspective and loved one's perspective. Yes. So there's five. The sixth is yours. And what did we miss? Those are just five perspectives. We're not just five there's not just five perspectives on us. So I'd like you to think about any that we might have missed. And, and I guess what I want to say in the spirit of what we talked about earlier, I'd like you to include those in your understanding of addiction. If you're someone who's in early recovery or maybe sustained recovery from addiction, uh, I'd like you to have as full a, a definition of addiction as you could for yourself. If you're the loved one of someone who's grappling with addiction or maybe in recovery, to have as full or a holistic a perspective on addiction as possible. And if you're a caregiver, if you're, if you're a mental health care provider, for example, a recovery worker, again, to have as many different perspectives available simply because Odie and Bob and all of us are complicated beings. And it seems to me that we would require that kind of complexity to be able to address any phenomenon, particularly a, uh, a phenomenon of the gravity of addiction. Um, We've already talked about these two slides, and I'll just cover them quickly. We've already established that each one of these perspectives, looking at this from a holistic angle, mm -hmm. each one of the perspectives we've discussed today is necessary. Mm -hmm. Spirituality, medicine, therapy, the law, etc. Each one of those perspectives is absolutely uh, essential, but not sufficient to explain addiction. And so we what we talked about after that was we discussed the part whole error, which is this is where misunderstandings come about, where, where somebody will reduce you down to just being medical yeah. or just, just therapeutic yeah. or just, uh, just spiritual, mm -hmm. and that, that we're going to miss parts of ourselves in that. And I liked very much how Odie talked about bypassing. Just as there's spiritual bypassing, you could say the same thing, there's a, a biological bypassing. If you reduce everything down to being biological, then you miss the psychological, mm. you miss the social, you right. miss the spiritual, you miss the cultural. And so what we're talking about is being as inclusive as possible. I want to conclude by saying that there is hope, and um, this gets back to the question that was asked today. I think the way that we think about addiction and the way that we talk about it matters a lot. And as we discussed at the very outset, is that shame and stigma activate the mid part of our brain, and one of the solutions to that is activating the front part of our brain, which is the part that is cares about words. Mm -hmm. cares about accurate definitions. And so what I want to suggest today, there's hope, and there's hope particularly in understanding addiction from a holistic perspective um, uh, for the addict, for the loved ones of the addict in recovery, for those that work with the addict in recovery. The more, the more complete, the more embracing uh, a, a language that we can have for addiction, the better off we are. So that's today's presentation. 
We'll be actually moving next week into a psychological perspective that we touched on today. Remember how we talked about a therapeutic perspective and how it looks at the beginnings of addiction? Mm -hmm. Next week, we'll be looking at early origins for addiction. And by early origins, I'm talking about early origins developmentally. Mm. How is it that certain patterns are laid down behaviorally, mm -hmm. emotionally, uh, as well as even biologically early on in our lives? And how do those manifest uh, later on in addiction? We've already kind of tipped the card here by talking about the studies of adverse childhood experiences mm. where uh, early childhood trauma definitely is correlated with addictive behaviors later on. But we're going to look at it in a more expanded way. We'll be talking about that. We'll be talking about genetics. We'll be talking about a whole bunch of interesting stuff next week from a therapeutic perspective, which is just one perspective. Okay. <laughs> I sometimes tell people I'm sorry. That's my background is in psychology. So yeah. I want to be careful not being a psychological hammer that sees everything as a psychological nail. But that is my strong suit. Okay. <laughs> Um, if you have any final comments or questions for Odie and me, I want to encourage you to submit those. You can submit those to Ask an Addiction Specialist at our Facebook group. Look it up on Facebook. You can go to YouTube and look up our videos and write comments there. You can also uh, 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 write me directly. My website is uh, drbobweathers.com, and there's a, uh, there's a uh, place there where you can contact me. Just write me, and I'm happy to respond to you. I want to thank you very much for joining us this afternoon, Odie. Thank you thank for you. being here today. I really appreciate your engagement. Absolutely. It really, uh, we go different directions than I would have anticipated, which is the whole point. Okay. Yeah. I want to thank Austin Armstrong also for being with us today and being a man. He's an octopus. He's got eight <laughs> arms. And he's like, like a mad scientist over there working. Thank you. I want to thank Beginnings Treatment Centers as well for sponsoring us uh, as we continue forward. You all have a good week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next Wednesday. Take care. Bye.